Well, if you have not turned in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, please go ahead and do that. Um, we're in a, the, our second week of a series that I've titled uh, Raised, where we were looking at our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection, and Lord willing, we'll be back in the book of Hebrews next week. But if you're visiting here today for the first time, or maybe the second time, uh, we just want to say we, we welcome you here. We're glad you're here. You have to know something um, about us in this church. Uh, you have to know that we're sinners, and if you don't understand that, you will be sorely disappointed if you hang out with us long enough. But secondly, we want you to know that we love Jesus here at Grace. We love him because he first loved us. Now, we don't love him perfectly. We don't love him the way that we should love him, but we do love him because he's merciful and he's gracious and he's kind and he forgives sinners like us. And that's what we're going to talk about today out of God's word. We're going to talk about God's out of this world love for sinners like us. The band My Chemical Romance has a song called Welcome to the Black Parade. And, and I love this song because it's this epic song that, that builds. It's kind of like an anthem. And maybe you've heard it. Perhaps you don't listen to My Chemical Romance. But the lyrics to this song remind me of Jesus. So let me share them with you. The singer begins by saying, When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city to see a marching band. He said, Son, when you grow up, would you be the savior of the broken, the beaten and the damned. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. To be the savior of the broken. To be the savior of the beaten. To be the savior of the damned. He came to save us. He came to people like us. To save people like us. People who are a part of the black parade. What is the Black Parade? No, it's not like a clothing club that I've started. Because there are only two members of that club, me and Johnny Cash, and we don't want anybody else to join. What is the Black Parade that I speak of? It's everyone born in this world. People who are broken and beaten and damned because of Adam's sin. So if you do, did not know that this morning that you are broken and beaten and damned by the first man Adam sinned, then allow me to welcome you to the Black Parade. You are in the company of sinners. So welcome to the Black Parade. And our situation as human beings in this fallen, broken world is so dark, it's so black, that God had to send his son Jesus in order to save us. As Alistair Begg says, our sin must be absolutely horrendous if it takes the death of God's only Son to fix it. Our sin, who we are as sinners, as a part of the Black Parade, our sin is so absolutely horrendous that it took the death of God's one and only Son 
to fix it. Sobering words. There's bad news, but there's also good news. And the bad news and the good news make up our big idea today. The bad news is this. Everything the Bible says about sin is true of you and true of me. The good news is that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. And that's what we need to hear today. And we're just going to skim our passage today. This passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 is so wonderful, so dear to me, and so dear to many of you. And it deserves at least 10 sermons, perhaps 20 sermons. But we're just going to skim over it today. So please know that we're just skimming this passage, just barely scratching the surface. So look again at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What Paul says here in this passage is an enormous comfort to me and to every Christian. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. No one can be against us if God, the almighty, sovereign Lord of the universe, the triune God, if he is for us, then nobody can be against us. ISIS cannot be against us if the eternal Son of God is for us. For us. So no one can be against us if God is for us. And the proof that God is for us is that He gave us His Son, Jesus. Jesus was condemned on the cross in our place for our sins. I mean, this is how bad, how dark, how black our situation is. It took the life and the death and the resurrection of God's one and only Son to remedy it. And so in light of God responding to our bad situation, our dark situation as sinners, by sending his son Jesus, Paul then asked this question, if God gave us Jesus, will he not graciously give us all things? And the answer is, of course. I mean, if God gave us his son, that proves that he's good. It proves that he's loving. It proves that he's kind. It proves that he's merciful. And he is all of those things to sinners and rebels like us. But then Paul asks another question. Who can bring any charge against God's elect people? Who is there to condemn us? And the answer is, again, no one. No one can accuse us. No one can say that we are guilty anymore because we are forgiven. As Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, who are trusting in him. But before we came to Jesus, we were condemned. We're part of the black parade of humanity. We were condemned by God's law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. 
God's law is a reflection of, of his character, his, his moral character, who he is. And, and God's law gets summed up in, in the Ten Commandments. So when Paul says, who is there to condemn? God's law, that's who. Who is there to condemn every person born into this world? God's law is there to condemn them. And it does condemn. But for Christians, those who are in union with Jesus Christ, there is no one to condemn us anymore. God's law has been silenced, meaning the condemning voice of God's law. The condemning voice of God's law that says you are guilty. The condemning voice of God's law has been drowned out by the cry of Jesus from Calvary when he said, it is finished. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he silenced the condemning voice of the law for anyone who would trust in him. But for those who do not trust in Jesus as their treasure, they are born and they stand and they remain condemned. So Jesus didn't come to condemn people. I hope you know that this morning. Jesus did not come to condemn people because people were already condemned before Jesus came to the earth. What does the rest of the verse, what does the rest of John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So Jesus didn't come here to condemn people. God's law already does that. The Ten Commandments do that. I think God gave us Ten fingers to remind us of the Ten Commandments all the time that it's there before us. To remind us that we're sinners and we need a Savior. So we're already condemned. Jesus came to save bad people. Jesus came to save dead people, condemned people. And the fact of the matter is that we are all born sinners. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We're born dead in sin. I mean, dead. Spiritually, we're born dead in sin. I mean, what is, what is dead? What does dead mean? You're dead, right? And Paul says we're dead in sin spiritually. That means that we cannot bring ourselves out of this spiritual death that we're in because we're dead. We cannot bring ourselves out of this spiritual grave that we are born in. It takes somebody outside of us. It takes somebody outside of us to dig us up out of the grave that we are born in. And here's proof. Let me ask you, did any of you have a say when you were born into this world? Did any of you get to vote on whether or not you would be born into this world? Did any of you get to cast a vote to your parents? Hey, listen, if I'm going to have a say here, my vote is I want to be born into this world. If you're, if, you're, if you're taking votes. No, of course not. None of us had a say as to whether or not we were created. In the same way, nobody has a word in whether or not they are recreated spiritually. Nobody has a say in whether or not they are born again. Because it is a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. See, grace is not your ability to choose. 
Grace is God acting and choosing in kindness. God making you alive when you're dead. God bringing you up out of the grave. And just as you cannot create yourself physically, so too you cannot recreate yourself spiritually. Now let me say that again because I want you to grasp the truth. Grace is not your ability to choose. Your ability to choose eternal life. Your ability to choose God. Grace is God acting and choosing in his kindness coming to you and God making you alive when you are dead. God bringing you up from the spiritual grave that you're born in. So you cannot create yourself physically and you cannot recreate yourself spiritually. It takes the spirit of God. So we are not guilty by our choice. We are not condemned by our choice. None of us would wake up one day and declare, I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I'm guilty of breaking God's commands. I think I just said that like Elf. If you remember that movie. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. No one wakes up and says that, do they? No one is guilty by choice. No one is guilty by their choice anyway. But we are guilty because of Adam's choice. We're guilty as sinners because of Adam's sin, because of his choice, because Adam, the very first human being made by God, because he chose to disobey God and to eat that fruit in the Garden of Eden. So we're guilty by his choice. And that rubs us the wrong way as Americans, right? It rubs us the wrong way as Americans. Because to be told that we are guilty because of someone else's choice, to be told that we are condemned because of someone's choice and not ours, that rubs us the wrong way. We don't like that, do we? Why? Why do we not like that? Because the following statement is in our DNA. The following statement is flowing through our blood. And what statement? It's this statement, which I'm sure you learned in grade school. No taxation without representation. Right? Didn't you learn that at an early age? It's in our DNA. It's in our blood as Americans. And because someone made it rhyme, it's very memorable, and we still remember it to this day. And so we cry out, no taxation without representation. And because that is in our blood as Americans, we transfer that mentality to original sin, and we say this, no condemnation without representation. And so we think, I wasn't in the garden with Adam. Read the Bible. I wasn't there. I wasn't in the garden with Adam. I didn't eat any of that fruit. I don't even like fruit. Why am I guilty? Why am I condemned? I wasn't there. But the Bible tells us that we were there. We were there with Adam. We were there in Adam. In Adam, we all died spiritually the moment that he ate that fruit. So we're born in the grave with Adam. Yes, we're born physically in a hospital, but spiritually, we're all born in a cemetery. And so God's law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, exposes you and me as sinners and rebels. And only Jesus can dig us up out of that grave. Only Jesus can get us out of the coffin that we're all born in. And so God's law exposes us and we find ourselves in a morgue. We're condemned. We're dead. We're zipped up in a black body bag. And because we're dead, we don't need resuscitation. We need resurrection. We don't need to be revived with smelling salts. We need resurrection. We need to be made alive. And so what the law does is it condemns you. It kills you. It shows you that you're dead in Adam. It buries you in the ground. 
and then it wipes the dust off its hands. That's what the law does when it comes to you. It zips you up in a black body bag and it buries you and then it wipes the dirt off its hands and it walks away. But Jesus shows up with a shovel and he says, I bring back the dead. And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that just as Adam was our representative, so too is Jesus. Just as you weren't in the garden, you weren't on the cross either. Christian, you were guilty in Adam, in the garden, and you are righteous in Christ in the gospel. Even though you weren't in the garden with Adam, and even though you weren't on the cross with Jesus. You were guilty in the garden, but you are guiltless in the gospel. And so this is actually a more accurate way to say it. Condemnation with representation. That's Genesis chapter 3. That's the Garden of Eden. You were condemned by Adam even though you weren't there. You were condemned by Adam as soon as the juice from that fruit ran off his lips and down his chin. But the good news of the gospel is that as soon as that juice ran down Adam's chin, God's eternal plan to send his son Jesus was set in motion in real time. And so with Adam, it's condemnation with representation. He represents us, but with Jesus, it's justification with representation. He represents us. He declares us righteous. That's the gospel. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's Calvary. You were justified by Jesus even though you weren't there. And you didn't ask Adam to represent you, but he did. And you didn't ask Jesus to represent you, but he did. And so things have been done to you and on your behalf, both in Adam and in Christ. Adam messed you up and Jesus fixes you if you trust in him. You were condemned in Adam, and you were justified, declared righteous, declared perfect, declared blameless, declared without sin in Jesus. And so that's the bad news and the good news. Condemned in Adam, justified in Jesus. Guilty in the garden, guiltless in the gospel. And it is all something that is done to you and for you on your behalf, even though you weren't there. Adam condemns you without you being present When he ate from the tree, when the juice ran down his chin, and Jesus justifies you without you being present when he died on the tree. One man and one tree condemns, and one man and one tree justifies. So salvation has to be done to you, from outside you. Jesus came because we couldn't save ourselves. He came to represent us just as Adam represented us. He came to represent us through his life, his sinless life. He came to represent us through his atoning work on the cross, his death. And he came to represent us through his resurrection. Just as Adam represented us through his eating of the fruit from that tree. See, Jesus came to live the life that God's law requires of all of us. And Jesus came to die the death that God's law pronounces all over us because we break his law. So God's law shows you that in Adam you are born dead in sin and you deserve to be punished forever in hell because you have rebelled against God, your creator, through either unrighteousness or through your man-made righteousness. The bad news is that you and I are inherently bad. We are corrupt. We are dead in Adam. 
But the good news of the gospel, in Christ, in the gospel, you can be made alive. You can escape the wrath to come and be made new. And God will forgive you of all of your sins. And he will cleanse you and start a process of transformations, the likes of which you could never pull off on your own. And it's free if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus. And it's all because of Jesus. So the bad news is that everything the Bible says about sin is true of you. But the good news is that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. Now, maybe you don't believe all this talk. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I don't believe this talk about being born a sinner, being born dead in sin, being born in the grave, spiritually dead. I don't buy all this talk about Adam being my representative, or he bit the fruit, I became guilty. Maybe you don't buy any of that. You don't think we're bad, but let me share a story with you to prove my point. I heard Ravi Zacharias one time. He's a Christian theologian and philosopher, a very, very, very smart man. And he has a very cool accent, which is unfair because when he preaches and, and teaches and talks, it just sounds cool and you want to listen. And he's a very winsome, engaging man and kind and gentle. And so I heard him respond to a question once about this. At a debate, a young man in the audience came up to the microphone that they had in the aisles at the end. They opened it up to question and answer time with the audience. And this young man had this to say to Ravi Zacharias, who is this incredibly intelligent man, very winsome and kind and gentle. And this man said this to Ravi. All night you guys have been grappling with issues like morality and, you know, what is right and what is wrong and meaning. But my question is simply... Why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? Meaning, why are you afraid to just let people come up with their own ideas about what's right and wrong? So he says, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? I mean, do you think that we're all going to just start raping and pillaging just because we don't have a book to tell us what to do? I mean, are you afraid of that? Like, I'm not because that's not going to happen. And yeah, the Nazis were bad, but... There were Christian Nazis and there were atheist Nazis, so I don't see, what are you so afraid of? Okay, so basically the young man was challenging Ravi Zacharias about how we don't need the Bible, we don't need morals, we don't need God's laws, we don't need God or a God telling us what to do or what he expects of us, because in this young man's eyes, we're all good. This young man says, we don't, we don't need the Bible, we can all subjectively come up with what is right and what is wrong. And he says, you, are you afraid that if we're left to come up with what is right and wrong, that we're all going to start raping and pillaging one another? He said, no, 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 we're good. Why are you afraid of subjective moral reasoning? Why can't all people individually determine what is right and wrong for them? And so the young man ends by asking Ravi, what are you so afraid of? And I love Ravi's reply. He just stands up and he says, do you lock your doors at night? Think about that. He totally owned this kid. You see, this kid's saying, hey, leave us be. Let us determine what's right and wrong. And then Ravi asks him, well, why do you lock the doors at night? Because you don't believe what you're saying. You see, we lock our doors at night because we do, in fact, believe that people are bad. And if you want to say that people are not bad, not inherently evil, then don't lock your door at night. Let's see what happens, okay? Leave your wallet or leave your purse on the table at Starbucks and come back the next morning to pick it up. 
If you think people are not bad, then post your social security number and all your personal information on Facebook. And what will happen if you do these things? Someone will walk into your house at night and they might rape and pillage you and they might even murder you. And if you survive the night and you go back to Starbucks the next morning, you'll discover that someone took your wallet or your purse and they had a fun shopping trip on Amazon.com. You will discover that you bought things that you didn't even know you wanted. And you'll discover that there's another you living in some other state using your name, your identity, your social security number, and committing fraud. So are we bad? You betcha. And the reason we are this way is because Adam made a decision on our behalf to rebel against God, and we inherited his DNA. And if you still don't believe me, okay, maybe you still say, I'm not buying it, okay? If you still don't believe me, when you leave here today, Just go to this roundabout and just drive your car around and around and around and you will begin to see just how bad people are. (laughs) The roundabouts in Santa Maria are opportunities for us to tell everyone just how bad we are. And you know, if you can't admit that, that you've gotten mad in a roundabout and maybe stuck an appendage up in the air or said something in your mouth you shouldn't have said. If you can't admit that this morning, you're lying and therefore you're proving that you're bad. Because haven't we all been in these roundabouts and we talk to the people in the other cars as if they can hear us? Don't you know if you enter on the right, you got to go out, you can't go to the middle. See, we are bad and God has graciously given us 10 fingers to remind us and he's graciously given our city roundabouts to remind us just how bad we are. The bad news is that everything the Bible says about sin is true of you. But the good news is that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. The bad news is that everything that the Bible says about sin is true of you. And the good news of the gospel is that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. And that's what Easter is all about. The death of Jesus is proof That everything that the Bible says about sin is true of you. But the death of Jesus is also proof that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. The death of Jesus on the cross is God exclaiming to you, I love you. Or in the words of Martin Luther, the incarnation is proof that God is not against us. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof that God is not against us. The resurrection is proof that God loves us. Look back at Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love 
of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God gave up his son because he loves us. He did not spare his own son precisely because he loves us. And so Jesus died more than that, Paul says. He was raised. He was resurrected. He came back from the dead. He came out of the grave. And now, Paul says, he intercedes for us before God right now because God loves us. Jesus intercedes for us. And he stands up for us when we are accused by the devil. And he stands up for us and intercedes for us when we are accused because we are his. And he knows the length that he went to in order to justify us. And so he intercedes before God the Father for us. It reminds me of the, the lyrics of the song, His Be the Victor's Name. And Christian, this is true of you this morning. What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. My sin is cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. No more to haunt accusingly, for Christ has lived and died for me. Jesus intercedes for us before the Father, and he can't remember our sins. He can't remember our sins. The thing that haunts you, Jesus can't remember that, Christian. And so when the devil accuses us before Jesus, when the devil goes before the throne of God to Jesus... And it starts accusing us and saying, look what they do. Look what your brothers and sisters do. Do Look what your, your people do. Look what your church do. Do they represent you and your fame and your character and your glory in this world, Jesus? Look how they act. Look how they talk to one another. Look what they do. And when the devil does that, Jesus, our older brother, stands up. And he says, what sins? What sins are you talking about? They're perfect. What do you mean? They're blameless. He stands before God the Father and intercedes for us when we're accused. And so nothing can separate us from God's love. And Paul lists several things here that cannot separate us from God's love, but they sure do sound a lot like they actually would be able to separate us from God's love. I mean, listen to this list. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, if you're in a famine, wouldn't you doubt God's love? Nakedness. If you had no clothes wandering around, wouldn't you doubt God's love for you? Danger, sword. If you had a sword to your neck, would you think, do you love me, God? Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth. And then Paul says, anything in creation. You just name it. If you experienced any of these things, I'm sure you would feel that God did not love you. And my hunch is that Paul probably experienced these things. So he's telling us, I think from personal experience, that at times he doubted God's love for him. But he knew deep, deep down that no matter what he experienced, he knew deep, deep down that God did love him. And the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus were his proof. And so this is Paul's list. But what is it for you? What has happened in your life that makes you question whether God loves you or not. What is happening in your life right now that makes you wonder 
do you really love me? I mean, what has happened in your life? That thing that you're thinking of right now when you think, I just, I wondered then, and sometimes I wonder now, does God love me? Why did he let that happen? If he loves me, why did he let that happen? Or, or what's happening in your life right now? Maybe something's happening. You didn't ask for it. And all this trouble's come your way. And maybe you're beginning to think, does God love me? If he loved me, would this be happening? So what has happened in your life or what is happening right now in your life that makes you wonder if God loves you? See, there are times, and we've all experienced it, there are times where things are going so bad that we wonder if God is good and we wonder if he loves us. Have you ever been there? Of course you haven't, and so have I. And this is why Paul quotes Psalm 44 in verse 36. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, Psalm 44 is a psalm about the nation of Israel suffering for their own self-inflicted suffering and their own self-inflicted sin, but also for the suffering that was inflicted upon them by the other nations. And as the nation of Israel suffered, I'm sure they were tempted to think that God did not love them. They're, They're just like us, or we're just like them. And sometimes life feels like we're facing death all day long, doesn't it? Sometimes you go through things in life and you think, I'm facing death. Sometimes you think, you know, really, I just want to die, actually. If I could just die and escape this, that, that might be better. Have you ever been there? I have. Sometimes life feels like we're just sheep standing around waiting to be slaughtered. Like, we're going to be slaughtered. I just got to wait until I get pushed up to the front of the line. Sometimes life feels like it's nothing but tribulation and distress and persecution Famine and nakedness and sword. Sometimes it feels like all that life is, is suffering. But catch what Paul is saying here. Suffering is not proof that God doesn't love you. Suffering is proof that even in the midst of the most awful things that can happen in this world, God still loves you. In all of these things, in all of these things that we suffer, that we go through in our lives, those, those moments, all these things that break our hearts, our hearts are breaking. Why is my kid doing this? Why is my spouse doing that? Why is this happening? All these things that break our hearts, we're just heartbroken. Literally, like you, you learn what that expression means. You go through something like, that's what it means to have a broken heart. Like literally, my heart is broken. All these things that we go through, these things that keep us up at night so we toss and we turn it's just there we want to go to bed but we can't we want to sleep we can't because it's just it's just there all these things that make us toss and turn all these things that take away our appetite it's like we don't even want to eat anymore so we start losing weight we want to lose weight but we're like i don't want to lose it this way because the stress all these things that stress us out all these things that just they make us go through a whole box of kleenex in, in one day and all of these things paul says We are more than conquerors. And more than conquerors through what? Through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through Jesus, the one who loved us by living and dying and being raised from the dead for us. We're more than conquerors. In Greek, that phrase more than conquerors is is just one word in the Greek language. It basically means overwhelmingly triumphant and victorious in Christ because of his resurrection. 
We are victorious. We are more than conquerors. We are overwhelmingly triumphant and victorious in the midst of all these things because Jesus was raised from the dead. And Jesus' victory over sin and suffering and death, we know, was a lopsided victory by the word that Paul uses here. Overwhelmingly triumphant and victorious. And because it was a lopsided victory, that makes you more than a conqueror, and that means that you can stand up to the brokenness in this world, and you can stand up to the beaten and the damned and what you experience as a part of the black parade. You can stand up to the sin and the temptation in your life, and you can stand up to all the brokenness and all of the broken relationships that surround you and all of the brokenness that you see, and you can stand up to all of the suffering that you experience and all the suffering that you see all around you because you are already victorious, Paul says. You are already more than a conqueror overwhelmingly triumphant and victorious because of Jesus, because of his victory over sin, his victory over suffering, his victory over death, because of his lopsided victory over sin, suffering, and death. And so Paul says, we're more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, you kind of expect Paul to say, we are more than conquerors, overwhelmingly triumphant through him who strengthens us. You kind of expect Paul to say that. He's using this, this big Greek word that he probably made up, overwhelmingly triumphant through him who strengthens us. No, through him who loved us. You see, it's not through our strength. It's not through our willpower. It is through the love of Jesus that we are more than conquerors. And where do you experience this kind of love? The inseparable love of God that Paul talks about that's described here in Romans chapter 8. What's the proof that God loves us? It's the cross. You experience it at the cross. Where do you experience God's love, his inseparable love that makes us more than conquerors? You experience it at the cross. And notice that God's love here is in the past tense. Through him who loved us. Now, why? Why is his love mentioned in the past tense? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, when I'm experiencing tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, sword, Romans 8-like conditions, when I'm experiencing those things, I want to know that God loves me in the here and now, in the present. I want to know and feel his love right now as I go through all of these Romans 8-type conditions. So maybe Paul should have said, Through him who loves us. Loves us in the present tense. Now we might be tempted to say that, but there's a reason why Paul describes God's love in the past tense. And yes, of course God loves us in the present while we suffer. Paul's not saying that God only loved us in the past and he doesn't love us in the present. He's not saying that at all because he tells us here in in Romans chapter 8 that God loves us in the present because nothing can separate us from God's love right now. So yes, God loves us in the present. Why does Paul put it in the past? And the reason why Paul speaks of God's love in the past tense is because this is the summit of God's love. The highest point of God's love is not what he's doing now. The highest point, the summit, the apex, the pinnacle of God's love for you is not what he's doing right now. See, this is how we are sometimes with God. If you loved me, then you would do this right now. This is where I need you to come through for me now, so I'm going to tell you what I want you to do for me right now, in the present, and then I'll know that you love me. 
But that's not where we see God's love on display. It's what he did for us in the past at the cross when Jesus suffered for us, when he suffered for our sin and our rebellion. And that means then that to experience God's love in the present, you have to climb the summit of his love in the past at the cross. Do you want to see and feel God's love today? Do you want to see and feel God's love right now? Because of the Romans 8 type conditions that you're going through right now, do you want to see it and feel it and know it? Then you have to get to the cross. Get to the cross because that is where you see the love of God on full display and at full volume. And that is why nothing can separate us from the love of God because God's forever love was shown at the cross in the past when Jesus died for us. Now, you may be here thinking this today. I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God who would love me in spite of all the bad things I do, in spite of my rebellion. I don't believe that that stuff is true. But don't you wish that you did? Don't you wish that you did believe in a God like that? If you're here today and you say, I don't believe in that kind of God, don't you wish you did believe in a God who loved you so much that he sent his only son to live and die for you? You may say that you don't believe all the stuff that I've been talking about, but wouldn't it be great if you did? Don't you wish that you did? Believe in a God who will forgive you of all of your sins, all the horrific thoughts that have gone through your head, all of the horrific words that have come out of your mouth, all the horrific things that you've done in your life and and the horrific motives behind everything that you've been thinking, saying, and doing? Wouldn't it be great if you believed in a God who said, not only do I forgive you of all of those sins, but I don't even remember them anymore? You can today. You just cry out to Jesus. Will you come to Jesus today? Will you repent and own up to your sin and rebellion? All you got to say is, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Don't give me what I deserve because I'm a sinner. And you can say that today because of what Jesus said on the cross, because of something Jesus said in John 19. Verses 28 through 30, it says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, why did Jesus need a drink right before he died? I think Jesus wanted to make sure his throat was cleared so that he could utter those beautiful last words. It is finished. In the Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai. It means to finish, to accomplish, to fulfill. And what Jesus was saying is that I've lived a perfect life. I have obeyed God's law where all of humanity has failed. I have obeyed where Adam failed in the garden. I have fulfilled God's law. I have obeyed God's law. It is finished. And so there's no more trying to earn God's favor, trying to be good enough. If I could just be good enough, if I could just be a good person, then, you know, maybe God will like me. Maybe he'll put up with me if I can just be good enough. And Jesus is saying, it's finished. No more of that. I think Jesus got a drink of the sour wine because he wanted to make sure that everyone heard, to make sure there was no confusion, to make sure he was clear. It is finished. God's law 
has been silenced by Jesus, meaning the condemning voice of God's law saying that we are all guilty has been drowned out by the cry of Jesus from Calvary. It is finished. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he silenced the condemning voice of the law for any who would trust in him. And so the good news of the gospel is that it is finished, it's done. The good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus joined the black parade, meaning he took our sin and died in our place. He was condemned in our place. He was damned in our place. He was broken and beaten for us. And on the cross, God the Father looked at his son Jesus and he said, Son, welcome to the black parade. And then he poured his wrath out on his own son for our sin. And then after hours of bearing the curse of our sin, Jesus took a drink of that sour wine. And as soon as the juice flowed down his chin, he cleared his throat and said, it is finished. Jesus took a drink of that sour wine. And as soon as the juice flowed down his chin, he cleared his throat. So there would be no doubt as to what he said. It is finished. I have obeyed the law to justify sinners. The bad news is that everything that the Bible says about the horrific nature of sin is true of you and true of me. But the good news of the gospel is that everything that the Bible says about God's love, his amazing out-of-this-world love for sinners, like it's, it's true for you and it's true for me. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is proof that God loves you. So as we close, let me quote an old Baptist pastor, F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer described God's love this way. The love of God toward you is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a single daisy. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a wonderful picture? Wouldn't you like to belong to a God like that? The love of God toward you is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a single daisy. Don't you wish you believed in a God like that? You can today. You can run to Jesus. Run to Jesus, the one who conquered sin and suffering and death. The one who is the savior of the broken, the beaten, and the damned. The one who bought our freedom. The one who reigns victorious over sin. The one who reigns victorious over death. The one who reigns victorious over all. The one who reigns victorious over us. Christian, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your amazing love because we know the darkness in our own hearts. The bitterness that we feel towards people. The anger that we have, the the worry, the fear, the lust, all these things that plague us, God, we know them well. And so we're humbled that Jesus would take them upon himself upon the cross so that we could be declared righteous. What amazing love it is. May we turn our eyes to your son today and find joy and peace in believing. We ask in his name, amen.